And so this morning, I wanted to launch on a bit of a platform that Dave built last week. Uh, so he built a great platform out of the book of Revelation, if you remember that message. I'll visit a little bit of that. Um, and it's, if you're part of, if you're one of our secondary teachers at Belmont Christian College, I did share some of these thoughts uh, in the devotional that I ran earlier this term. And so I want to read you. I thought the Lord was 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 continuing to lay on my heart some thoughts out of this. Um, and I, if you're visiting with us, hey, it's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Mark, as you've probably gathered because you're calling me Mark. Um, but but we really we really value your time. We really value that you. You've chosen on a beautiful day like today to come to, maybe the first time here, it's a, it's a, it's a new place or a foreign place or you're visiting again. We thank, we, we really appreciate that. We're trusting and praying that God will speak to you and uh, meet you at your point of need. Um, so I want to, I've been in ministry now, full-time ministry for almost 25 years. And one of the books I've probably avoided the most is the book of Revelation. Um, and it's, it's not because I believe it's not God's Word. I, I really believe it is God's Word. No doubt about that. Um, but I think I avoid Revelation, or maybe you might avoid Revelation too, because it's, sometimes it, it can seem simply too weird. Uh, it can seem too complicated. It can seem too controversial. It can seem too maybe figurative. And you're wondering, what, what do we do with this, this, this book? Maybe you grew up in a church community that had a strong opinion and they really pushed a particular approach to the book of Revelation. Or maybe you grew up in a church community that had no opinion on the book of Revelation. And so uh, over church history, I think the wrestle with Revelation, the book of Revelation, is that we don't know exactly what to do with it. For some people, Revelation is purely a, a historical book. It's describing events that occurred in the past. For some people, Revelation is, is purely a, a book that's in the future, for things that are yet to come. For some people, Revelation is a purely symbolic book, and you can read into it a whole range of perspectives and thoughts that maybe you have or someone else has tried to tell you. For some people, it's all of that. And uh, I'm probably landing in the all of that bucket. I, I think Revelation is, a, is the Word of God given to us, and yes, it has historical uh, meaning and value. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I, had, I heard a great um, teaching series on Revelation uh, that I found incredibly helpful. It's, uh, it not only gave us, for me a great historical perspective on how to look at the book historically, but more importantly, is what do we do with it? What are we going to do with the book of Revelation? And so, um, the, so how does Revelation, yes, affect those from first century Middle East uh, 2,000 years ago, but Newcastle today? And so most historians would say the Apostle John uh, wrote the book of uh, Revelation while he was uh, on the island of Patmos. Some would date, there's two dates for Revelation. Some would date it in about 54 to 56 AD when the Nero was the emperor in Rome, the Caesar. Others would give it a later date, which is probably in the 80s to 90s AD, which is when Domitian was the emperor of Rome. And as I said, we need to remember that Revelation was a real letter written to real people facing real circumstances at a real time. Um, and so the book that they had, the, the letter they had that's included in our book today, is, has meaning for them, but also meaning for us. And so let's start in Revelation 2, chapter 1, talk a little bit 
Ephesus, a bit like what David did last week, and then move forward. And so write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. If you had your world map out, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. The church in Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, and he would lead Priscilla and Aquila. If, you're, if you know the, the story of Acts, the narrative of the growth of the church, you would see that Paul would found the church in Ephesus. He'd lead Priscilla and Aquila in that place. Uh, Paul would then move on. Other stories that occurred in Ephesus, you may recall, when... Um, they had a big bonfire and all the and all the magicians and sorcerers would come and they'd throw all their books on the bonfire, they'd burn all their idols. This is all happening in Ephesus. In fact, in Ephesus, because they or they threw all their idols and books onto the bonfire, all the silversmiths uh, they had a rebellion, and the silversmiths would drag Paul uh, into their marketplace and try to uh, kill him. This is happening in Ephesus. This is the backstory to what's going on in Ephesus. Uh, eventually they would release Paul, and Paul went on his missionary journey. So Ephesus was a significant city for many reasons. The Roman Empire was a deeply religious empire. They, part of their mechanisms of conquering and taking possession of the land was to accept different religions. That's okay, you can continue your Jewish religion or your pagan religion or even Christianity. We will accept that as one of our religions but as long as you don't cause a stir. As long as you can do your religious thing and not bother the peace of the Romans. And so that's what's happening in, in, in the Roman Empire. Very religious, but a lot of different uh, religions in that space. Uh, one, and the, in Ephesus, the major religion was the worship of Diana or Artemis. Uh, had a massive temple in that space. Uh, it was a highly sexualized religion. And it was very messed up. And so not only did the people in the Roman Empire, uh, particularly Ephesus, worship Diana, across the Roman Empire, they had instituted a worship of emperors. It's called the Imperial Cult. It sounds like something out of Star Wars, but it's not. But you find that uh, in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar died, uh, what would happen, that Hades Comet flew past. And when they saw how these comet flew past, they assumed that was the spirit of Caesar going up. And so they deified, they started to deify and make the emperors like gods. And so uh, from Julius Caesar all the way through, pretty much all the emperors would claim upon their death that they would be ascended to be a god in heaven. So that's what's happening. In fact, that was going on when Jesus was around. That was what's happening with Emperor Augustus or Caesar Augustus. All the emperors we come across, they're all viewed in the Roman Empire as eventually becoming deified or becoming gods or sons of God. And so um, it gave rise to the imperial cult. Uh, but it wasn't that. It didn't worship the gods like, uh, say, Diana. Anyone been to India? on a missions trip or visited India, if you're trying to get a glimpse of what the first cent or, or the uh, religion was like back 2,000 years ago, India or, or probably some of the other uh, tribal countries, probably give us a glimpse of what it's like when people bring sacrifices and they bring food and they bring, and they bring a whole range of things before an idol. And so a, a glimpse of what worshipping looked like. Now when it comes to first century emphasis, they didn't have... Uh, they didn't worship the emperor like that. In fact, the emperor worship was really a mechanism to make money for the Roman Empire. People were required to pay homage, to pay some money if they wanted to buy or sell or trade, 
pay homage to the emperor and also to their local gods. And so that's how the whole commerce of uh, the Roman Empire operated. Uh, they had to declare through paying homage. They didn't necessarily need to worship Caesar, but they had to acknowledge Caesar as God uh, and pay some money and then get their, get their little, well, uh, get the ability to trade. Uh, some of the historians would say that they would take, um, and Dave was explaining this last week, they would, they would burn an offering, they'd put it on their hands and their forehead before they could trade or sell. And so when you think about this, so being a Christian and emphasis was tough. Now, we thought we had it difficult in today's life. You know, we've got a lot of religious discrimination going on. It wasn't that long ago Israel Folau became a massive headline case on religious discrimination. Or we've got our media attacking such prominent churches like Hillsong. Uh, uh, media frenzy trying to destroy the church of God. Uh, we've got churches and Christian schools particularly, certainly in Victoria where we were, we were there seven years ago when we were pastoring. Christian education is under threat in Victoria and is potentially under threat at some stage in New South Wales. Can Christian schools employ Christian teachers? A whole range of opposition coming against Christians in our world today. All sorts of legislation that's passing through our parliaments. And they come in, these legislations, they come into conflict with our Christian values. The, the, the world we live in is, is, is making laws that are challenging us, challenge what we believe, challenging what we hold on to. Things like abortion or gender theory or politics or euthanasia, that the list goes on of a world that is challenging our worldview, challenging what we're standing on, challenging our value system. And so they're the very core foundations of who we are. So the church in Ephesus was facing a similar thing. However, for us, our challenge could mean that we get you know, bad news placed on media or Facebook or whatever. In Ephesus, if they, were, if they had an issue against them as Christians, they would likely be executed. And so it was a messed up world uh, in Ephesus. And for the church in Ephesus, they had to figure out how do we live as Christians in this world? How do we remain strong? How do we remain sexually strong because the, the, the world was crazy messed up there? So it is today. How do we remain doctrinally pure? How do we hang on to the truth of Scripture? The truth of Scripture and, and be strong in what we believe. They had to figure out how do we remain ethically strong in their business practices, in what they do. How do they live well in Ephesus? And by all accounts, they were doing pretty well in those spaces. Revelation chapter 2 we read this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks amongst the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You examine the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not, and you've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without fear. You see, God saw their faithfulness. God saw their efforts and their hard work. God saw them persevering in a difficult time, in a difficult world. God saw all they did to test the scriptures, to make sure that, that the apostles or the words that were coming, that they weren't false apostles or false teachers or, 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 or scriptures that are bent and twisted to their own way. God saw all their efforts to remain pure, all their efforts to, to be strong. Even when the culture was so permissive, God noticed their efforts to be, uh, be counter-cultural, doctrinally pure, morally pure, 
spiritually pure. Surely you'd think God would say, hey, well done guys. You guys are champions. We think God would say, I, I can see what you're doing and that's just amazing. But when we come to the letter to the church in Ephesus, I think what, a lot of what they're doing was, was noble. But in verse 4 we read, but I have this complaint against you. How could you have a complaint against them? I mean, look at these guys in Ephesus. They're doing it tough. How could anyone have a complaint against them? Because you don't love me. Or your translation would say, you've left your first love. And that's what Dave talked about last week. You've left your first love. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place amongst the churches. As I said last week, Dave shared a brilliant message on how the Ephesian church lost their first love. How they drifted away from a relationship with God. They disconnected from where they once were to where they are now. And the encouragement we had last week was to turn back to God and to, uh, to come back to Him. And so this morning I want to branch at that point because I want to look at what, what Jesus was saying to the church. And I don't know if you noticed, you probably did because I stumbled over my words. The language of what I got on the screen, verse 4, to what your Bible would say, that you've left your first love. The New Living Translation here is saying, if you don't love me or each other as you did at first. <coughs> a number of translations translate this in a different way. So here's the, the, I'll just, the words here. You've left your first love, or you've forsaken the love you had at first, or you've walked away from your first love, or you don't have as much love as you used to, or the New Living Translation that I've, I've used here. That you don't love me or each other as you did at first. So, I want to talk a little bit about this, because, you know, scholars would agree that the Ephesians had left or abandoned or forsaken love. Everyone, there's, there's, everyone agrees about that. There's no questioning there. But there's no clear agreement exactly what this was. John, John the Apostle John, who didn't speak English, as far as I'm aware, uh, used Greek, which any Greek speakers here, which would be interesting. Any ancient Greek speakers. So. Anyway, the Apostle John would use two words to describe first love. Uh, and, and so the first word is the word protos. Uh, we, we would get our English word prototype from that. Um, and so in the Greek word protos has a number of meanings when it comes to first. Is first meaning in chronology? It, it's used in the Bible to mean first in chronology. As in, they were when they first became Christians, that they they, they they the first type of love that they had in chronology, they'd lost that ability to love, like they were doing when they first were saved. That's the interpretation of Protos, using a chronological sense, and it was primarily toward one another. Or is it a first not in 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 um, chronology? Is it a first in priority? Because it also means that the word Protos can also mean chief, it can mean highest, it can mean, it can mean primary. And so, had they stopped making Jesus their greatest love, their greatest priority? It means both. You know, and so, uh, like, and, and so I think in, in this situation, I think the New Living Translation helps us, if you don't know Greek, to get a, a broader understanding of what 
this word means. If the, the word, it's, it's first love, the, the, the love you had at first. But I want to now move on to the word love. Um, and the reality is our love for Jesus is directly related to our love for one another. Um, next verse, thanks. John, same author, said, this is quoting Jesus, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, you should love one another. So these two concepts of love, whether it's uh, priority or whether it's chronology, I think it's the same. It can be the same. Because the, the more we love Jesus, the more we should be loving one another. And so, let's go to love. The ancient Greek had four words for love. You're probably familiar with these over time. We've got philia, agape, storge, and eros. Uh, in the New Testament, primarily two of those words are most often used. That's the word agape and philia. Philia represents brotherly love, affectionate love, friendship. It's the kind of love shared between close friends and family members. That's, so when we read scripture, uh, and in, in English it will say love, it's worth finding out what type of love it's talking about. So it may be the Greek word philia, or it may be the word agape which is the most selfless form of love. As Christians, yeah, we do not have the, uh, the stranglehold on the word agape. It was a Greek word that's perfected in God, but it was familiar to the Greek-speaking people. A, a, a Greek or a Roman general would show agape love as he leads his uh, army into battle and lays down his life on the battlefield. So agape is a sacrificial love. And uh, ultimately, Christian, Christianity owned that word because God is the greatest representation of a perfect love which is focused toward others. It's an unconditional love, a sacrificial love. It's a deep care talk toward the other person regardless of what the other person does. Choosing to love regardless or not of the other person's response to you. It's the type of love associated with God's love for humanity, for God so loved the world. In John chapter 3. But also it's the type of love that we are encouraged to have for one another. So, so what's Jesus saying to the church in Ephesus and ultimately to us today? Because it would seem that all their efforts to do good and be good not only had their love from God drifted, but it would seem the people in Ephesus, their love for one another had drifted. And according to Jesus, that's a big challenge for them back then. I think that's a big challenge for us today. See, in, in Ephesus, they were wrestling with challenges inside the church and challenges outside the church. I mean, we saw that a little bit further on in, in Revelation. We'd see that they, they don't tolerate evil people. It says that they've tested the claims of the Nicolaitans. That's just a few verses later. The Nicolaitans were one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They were full of compromise. And so God's saying, I, I see that you're trying hard to remain doctrinally pure. You're, you're, you're trying to deal with the false apostles and false teachers. <coughs> but, I, but I think the point we get to here is could it be, I'll ask the question, could it be that their desire to be pure and correct had created a schism in their community where they struggled to love one another as they used to. <coughs> Let's have it again. 
Could it be that their desire to remain strong and pure and correct? Could it be that they, all their great efforts to do that caused a schism? <coughs> and they struggled to love one another. Jesus says, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. Jesus is saying, the pathway back to agape love, the pathway back to relationship with Jesus in a greater way is true love. Not the Shrek type of true love, but a true agape love. And it's very practical. Not Shrek? No, no, Shrek's got true love. Hands up if you think Shrek's got true love in it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. More importantly, Princess Bride has two love. Two love. Okay. You guys make me lose my rhythm. True love. True, true love. And so the, the concept of love isn't this, isn't a Princess Bride kind of love. It isn't a Shrek type of love. In fact, it's a very practical type of love. To love each other better. In fact, John again in his letter. Interestingly, John writes a lot about love. Which is fascinating because as you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus had his disciples. He had his 12 disciples. Then he had three close friends. Yeah, Peter, James, John. And the Bible says that Jesus had one that he loved the most. John understood love in a greater way. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he would, he would entrust the, his mum to the care of John. So John would have heard all about the, the, what it is to love. And so it's not surprising that when you read John's writing, he talks a lot about love, whether it's a revelation, talk to the Ephesians, or whether it's all, all his letters. But John says this, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also give up, we ought to give up our lives to our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Love is practical. Love is really practical. And so how does this apply to us today? That's what I want to get to. And um, see how we go with this. I think we live in a world that's lost its ability to love. Well... It's lost its ability to disagree with one another and still love one another. I was talking about this with my hairdresser. Yes, thank you. It does look good. It was, yes. Because <laughs> hairdressers are really, a, yeah, confidant. I've never met this one before, but I talked about it. Um, I, mean, I mean, we're talking about our, our community and our ability to actually disagree. Well... And so we we're talking about communities, and this is, it's a big deal, it's happening across the, the world, a schism in the world, uh, and it happens in the church as well. I know, not our church, but actually, yes, probably our church. Um, we saw this across the world, we saw the world split and divided on so many things. The last probably few years through the pandemic showed us a world that was split and divided. 
but it's always been there. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't like, here's the pandemic, pandemic, all of a sudden we've got division. It is always there. Uh, differences in political opinions, differences in theological beliefs on a whole range of topics. From, from the work of the Holy Spirit to women in ministry to creation to revolution to healing to demons to end times to salvations to Bible translations to how you parent. There's a massive list of things that, are, that we've got so many varying opinions on. It's a big list. And people are arguing that their particular opinion or approach, they're saying that mine is right. And unfortunately, in the world we live in, it's not possible for mine to be right and to accept your point of view. The world we live in is, mine is right and yours is wrong. <coughs> we live in a world that is, that is now not, it's, it's polarised between your view and my view. There's no middle ground. This was happening in Ephesus. People polarised for doing the right thing, trying to, do, to, to be good and hold on tight. And Jesus says, hey, it's time to stop. Time to open our eyes and, and have a look around. If you really love me, love others. You don't have to believe what they believe. You don't, you don't have to, to, uh, to do what they say you have to do. We, don't, we definitely don't need to water down God's truth and, and, and adapt our thinking just because someone else says, hey, this is what I think. We don't need to compromise with the world's, with, 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 with what they're doing or what they're saying. In fact, my, my hairdresser, as I was talking to her, um, I was identifying, look, I, um, I'm, I, I work, I, sort of, I start with, I'm work, I work with the church. I start there because they don't understand if I said I'm a pastor. I work with the church and I was saying, look, the, the framework I operate with, and her background was, was Catholic, I found out. I said, the framework that we work from, I, I, I brought her into my circle. I said, the framework we, we work from is we believe in what God says in the Bible. That, that's our framework. But I know many other people don't have the same framework as us. And so we don't want to be... Do, do we, Hedra? I didn't know her name. But um, I said, so we don't need to be shoving our beliefs down their throat, do we? She goes, no. And she goes... And I said, in the same way, people shouldn't be shoving their beliefs down our throat. She goes, that's, that's true. And so, but this is the world where, where I've got to prove you wrong. And you've got to prove me wrong, whether it's, it's the, the type of... Um, back in the day, it used to be with the, uh, the James Hardy, it was always Fords versus Holders, wasn't it? It was always a... That, that was the competition. Now there's just so many different varieties. Or there's Pepsi versus Coke. Or there's Apples versus... Rubbish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was for you, Dave. Um, <laughs> Stay. <laughs> Dave's not even here, so very nice. Um, <laughs> but, we, but we live in a world where we can't, where we struggle to make things work with different opinions. If you really love me, Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, love one another. Messed up world today. Messed up world back in Ephesians. Messed up values, messed up thinking, messed up behaviours. And this is where I got to with our devotions at, at, uh, at the school. Do you remember again? Of course. We need to find ways. I really believe we need to find ways to hold on to our beliefs. We've got to find ways to, to hold on to our core values, hold on to our non-negotiables, 
We need to find ways to remain biblically strong because we've got to remain biblically strong. We've got to find ways not to water down God's truth. We've got to find ways not to compromise with the world's values or systems or practices. We've got to find ways to do that and hold on to it tight. And, everyone say and. and. We've got to find ways to love others. We've got to find ways to hold on to truth and we've got to find ways to navigate when people disagree with us. Still extend love to those who disagree with us. Inside the church and outside the church. You say, what's the answer? How do we do that? I haven't got the answers. But God does. And His Holy Spirit that He gives us, His very presence in us, can lead us in a way where we can love those who are very different to us. We need God's help to be strong in our faith. And love those who have got a different view to us on a whole range of topics. If you go down the street and ask questions around a whole range of things, they believe very differently to us. And we've got to be careful we don't sort of draw a line and go, well, you've got to believe what I believe, otherwise I've got nothing to do with you. Now, there is a place for that. But as I read scripture, it's primarily in the church. <coughs> How do we hold on to truth? How do we hold on to things that are, that are, that are values that are unshakable that, you, that we never want to let go of? But how do we then take things with an open hand? But you know what? I can love you. I can love you although you believe because you've got a different position to me. I can believe that you've got... I can love you even though you've got an Android phone. I can, I can love you... Well, I'm not too sure. Um, I can. Even though you've got green bubbles coming up on your screens. I can love you. We've got to find ways to let love win. We've got to get beyond the fighting and the, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the battling over our theologies and I'm right and you're wrong and you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong and trying to force one another into each other's camps and say, you know what, you may be different to me, you may believe something different to me, whether it's in the church or whether it's outside the church, I can still love my, my friends that have a different faith system to me. I've got to find ways to love them better. I've got to find ways to, to remain strong in my faith and love those who maybe don't share the same faith perspective to me. Jesus did that well. He spent time with those who were very unlike him. People who are, I think Andy Stanley would say, people who are unlike Jesus like Jesus. And Jesus liked people who are unlike him. <coughs> so what do we, we've got to figure out what are we going to hold on to? What are we going to fight for? What are, we going to, what are we going to make non-negotiable? What are we going to do there? And what are we going to let go in the efforts to love? And that's I'll get a team up. Thanks, Ben. And I've wrote here that there will always be a tension in the space between truth and love. This is what I believe is truth. But, those, but others are different to me. And there will always be this tension between truth and love. And, and I said, we need God's grace for this space. When you come across people in the church or outside the church that are very different to you. Different frame of reference. Different perspective on life. Different perspective on uh, politics 
or gender or marriage. When you come across people who have a, who have a different understanding or journey they're walking on trying to figure out how to make sense of this world. We've got to be able to be sure and confident in the truth that we have that is found in Jesus. And say, you know what, Jesus, I am standing in truth in your truth. And I'm going to hold on to you. But Lord, help me accept and love and show mercy and grace to those who are very unlike me. And I tell you what, I need his help to do that. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't do this by myself. I need God's grace for the space. How about you? As I was praying and, uh, and thinking, how can we, how can I wrap this message up? There's there two dimensions I wanted to speak into. One is understanding. And asking the question, if you need God's grace for the space, I want to pray for a measure of grace. I want to pray with you and believe with you that God's going to give you the ability to, to, to navigate this tension without, without, without getting stuck here. And certainly without getting stuck here. But that we can hold both together. So if that's you and you say, Mark, that's me, I need God's grace to help me in this space. Give me a little wave and say, Mark, that's me. I'd, I'd, I'd be expecting most of us. I know, but we don't put our hands up, I get that. I need help. Becky, put your hand up for the person next to you needs grace for the space. That'll get the hands up. <laughs> there we go, everyone's got their hands up. Except if you're sitting by yourself and then I'll put my hand up for you. Hey friends, we need, we need God's help, hey. We live in a world that is so broken and hurting. A world that is, that is unsettled. That, that is trying to figure out what to do, how to live. And, and it's unhelpful if we come and we say, you've got to believe this, blah, 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 blah. But they have to show grace. You can need grace for this space. So I'm going to pray for everyone. We will put our hands up. Actually, I'm going to pray for the person next to you. That's pretty better. But in a moment, we're going to finish the service, and I'll, I'll say what I want to say now because we do want to invite those who need to respond to respond. But those, if if you're here and you've got a severed relationship, maybe because you were too black and white, and you've got I don't know, I just felt the Lord say there's people who. Are, are actually have a severed relationship. We've got tension. People, are, we're all got tension. We're all praying that God will give us grace for this space. But there's people here. It's been severed, and and in the natural, you've got no mechanism to bring that relationship back. I want to pray into your space as well. And I'm going. I mean, the service is finished. We'd love, I'd love to invite if that's your severed relationship. I'd invite you to come and either. Receive prayer from our prayer team, prayer team. Or ask the person next to you, hey, can you pray for me? I've, I've, I've got a relationship. You don't need to tell us who it is, but so I've got a relationship that's severed. And I'm on God's help to rebuild it. So why don't we all stand together, please? Jesus said to the church, I know your good works.
I know what you've been, and I know how hard you've been praying and striving and doing and loving and, uh, well, not loving, it's an issue. I know, I know what you've been doing. I know you're trying really hard to be strong, really hard to be right, really hard to be correct, really hard to, and in Ephesus, that needed to be, my goodness, what was going on in Ephesus? They needed to, to have those resilience in that place, but not at the expense of relationships. So, Lord, I pray this morning for each one of us, Lord, as we, as we walk this tightrope of tension, as we try to figure out how to hold on to all you are and all that you say and all that we believe and all that we feel is right and true and good. Lord, give us grace to understand how we can extend love to each other, that we can accept those who have a different position or thought or idea than us, that we can show love. And Jesus, you say in Revelation that you will call us to return and do the works that we did before. And that's not striving works, but help us to love each other. Help us to love those that were different to us. And Lord, I pray, I'll pray now for those that have got severed relationships. Lord, I pray healing. I pray restoration. I pray miracles. Lord, you can turn bones into armies. Lord, you can turn graves into gardens. And so, Lord, we I bring those maybe graves or those dead dreams or dead relationships, I bring them to you. And we, I ask that you would do a miracle in that space. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us. Give us grace. Give us grace, a greater grace for one another. Help us not to be so proud or so particular or so narky or so sensitive. Lord, help us to show grace toward others because you've shown grace toward us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are marked by grace, a people that are marked by love, but a people that are holding on to truth and will never let go. In Jesus' name.